this morning. As Jason mentioned, it marks the beginning of a five-week vision casting series uh, that even as you heard me praying, I think could have a ripple effect in our church, in this community, in the outline communities for years to come. I'm not just saying that because it's Vision Sunday and you have to say big lofty things. I really do mean that. Um, And you'll see what I mean by that as we move forward. For the next five weeks, we're going to not only spend time unpacking the the mission and vision of Cross Point Church, uh, we're also going to spend some time considering the cultural air that you and I breathe and the impact that it has on our lives. I want to begin this series with a a declarative statement that I hope will draw you in uh, for the next several weeks, a statement that's incredibly simple and yet incredibly profound at the same time. And the statement is this, everyone everywhere is being discipled. Let me say that again. Everyone everywhere is being discipled. The question isn't, are you a disciple, but rather, who or what are you a disciple of? Put another way, uh, everyone is a disciple of a particular vision of the good life. We all live in a particular place in human history at a particular time in human history, and this place and time are not neutral. There are competing visions of what Jesus says is the good life and what the culture says is the good life, and we have a choice to make. We can, we can breathe the air that Jesus offers us and experience abundant life, or we can breathe the air that the world offers us and completely miss it. Joe Rigney, professor at Bethlehem College and Seminary up in Minneapolis, he says this. He says, we are always becoming who we will be. We are, all of us, in storied creatures living our lives in a narrative, which means our lives have directions, trends, and trajectories. Right this minute, we are headed somewhere, and sooner or later, we are bound to end up there. Everyone, everywhere is being discipled. Each and every one of us are disciples of a particular vision of the abundant life. And so the question that begs to be answered is this, and it's a question that that I want to attempt to unearth for the next five weeks. The question is, would Jesus agree with your definition of the abundant life? As followers of Jesus, if that's you, I don't want to assume anything. As followers of Jesus, if that's you, it's incumbent upon us to take our cues from Jesus himself, to look to Jesus and how he describes the good life instead of taking our cues from the surrounding culture. The, the tension between these competing visions of, of the good life and the narratives surrounding them uh, for the course of the next several weeks, I want to refer to that as the contested space. So you're going to hear that phrase a lot. It's in the contested space that we're called to fix our eyes on Jesus. It's in the contested space that we're called to point people to Jesus. It's in the contested space that we're called to make disciples of Jesus. It starts with our hearts and then it moves outward into our lives, into our families, into our homes, into our streets, into our communities, our workplaces, our schools, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. It's what many of us in the room have signed up for. It's called the Christian life, right? But, but here's the deal. I'm becoming increasingly convinced that few people are actually experiencing the, the abundant life that Jesus offers. And, and I think there are a number of reasons why that's true. But, but there are two big reasons that I want to spend some time on throughout the course of this series. Coming back to this idea of the contested space, you can think of it this way. Jesus is not the only one beckoning us with the same words he spoke to the disciples. Follow me. There are a number of competing voices declaring those two very words to us at any given moment. I gave you a little taste of this if you were around about a month ago, but... Uh, about a month ago, my wife and I went to the Acts 29 
uh, global gathering. The Acts 29 network is the church planting network that we're a part of. We had our first ever global gathering in Nashville, Tennessee. Don't ask me how uh, out of all the globe that's the city we ended up in, but we did. Um, and, and God uh, brought about some, somewhat of an awakening, I would say, for me. If you, if you rewind about seven years ago, my wife and I moved to Orlando. We were living in Peachtree City at the time. We started off our marriage here. And we moved to Orlando, and a big part of the reason why we moved was because I desperately wanted to get away from, from this hotbed of moralism known as the Bible Belt. You can ask my wife. I had determined we were going to move to Orlando, and we would either live there or, or anywhere south of there. Because if you know anything about the state of Florida, you know that culturally, the further south you move, the more northern you actually get. And so my goal was to get away uh, as best I could from the Bible Belt subculture that I grew up in. It messed me up like many of you. Living in this land where you, uh, if your story is, is one of legalism that you grew up in, you just jump the gospel ditch over into the other ditch of license and, and just go crazy. And then you find yourself just bouncing back and forth. Or maybe you grew up in a, in a, a, a historical uh, context in which... Uh, Sin was rampant, and, and you became a Christian, and then all of a sudden you traded one taskmaster for another, and legalism became your master. You know what I'm talking about? You, you just miss the gospel path over and over again as you move from one ditch to the other, and it frustrated my soul such that I told my wife, we're getting out of here, and we're not coming back. And over the course of five years, uh, God began to work and move and stir in my heart um, to uh, change it, to soften it, and in his providence, an opportunity uh, arose to come back a couple years ago. So we did. And now we're here. And for two years, I've been attempting to fight against this monster known as moralism, uh, the, these enemies of the gospel known as legalism and license. And, and if you've been around for the last two years, you, you know this. You've, you've heard that infused in sermons. You've, you've heard it infused in questions that have been written for community groups as we gather and dialogue about these things. But a month ago... As I sat in this Acts 29 global gathering, on one particular day, there was this, this little piece of, of the calendar for that day known as Stories from the Field. And a guy by the name of Ross Lester came up and shared for about 15 minutes. And, and the title of his message was My Life as a Suburban Church Planter. And he began to culturally unpack the reality of what's going on in the suburbs and the dangers there as it pertains to living a life of gospel centrality. And, and the more and more he began to talk, the more and more I began to realize that I, I got it wrong. For the last two years, I've had it wrong. That, that I think the, the, the challenge of moralism is a big one in, in the context of, of the South, which is where we are. If you didn't know that, um, we're in the South. Um, but I think the greater challenge that we're up against is, is not... Moralism. I don't think that's the biggest cultural giant standing in the way of the gospel in our context. I think it's suburbanism. Um, Jared Wilson, in his book, The Imperfect Disciple, he says this. He says, I think the spirit at work in the suburbs tends to smother the Christian spirit. The message of the suburbs, in a nutshell, is self-empowerment, self-enhancement, self-fulfillment. Self is at the center and all things serve the self. The primary values of suburbia are convenience, abundance, and comfort. And in suburbia, you can have it all, and you can get it made to order in a supersized cup with an insulated sleeve. As Ross Lester said in that global gathering breakout session, just a few quotes up on the screen, he said, 
You have to fight hard for genuine community in places that revolve around the cult of the standalone nuclear family unit. You have to preach and believe the scandalous gospel of grace in environments designed around performance and self-help. You have to remind people of God's great mission and their place in it in the midst of routines, school runs, commutes, and survival. I want to argue for the next four weeks that we live in perhaps the most contested space the world has ever known. The perfect cultural cocktail of moralism and suburbanism. And I don't share that with you to guilt you or to, to, to get you to throw your hands up in defeat. I share that with you to compel you. For one, to compel you to come back for the next five weeks. And, and listen, there will be a dozen different suburban reasons not to, won't there? Don't let those reasons win. Because for the next five weeks, we're going to talk about how to fight for the abundant life Jesus offers. We're going we're to expose those alternative voices that seek to disciple us, you might say. We're going to talk about uh, the beauty of, of a life lived in which the gospel radically transforms the contours uh, and fabric of our lives individually, communally, and culturally. But it's, it's really not just about the next five weeks. What we're going to talk about for the next five weeks just, just might shape the trajectory of your entire Christian life. Or it might redeem you out of what you thought was the Christian life into what truly is the Christian life. And so it's with that being said, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 1. That's where we'll be this morning, the first 11 verses. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath uh, one of the seats in the row in front of you. Grab that Bible, open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible, maybe you have a translation that's difficult to understand, please take that Bible with you. That's our gift to you. As you're opening up to this morning's passage, the goal of this morning is, is very simple. It's to lay out the mission and vision of our church as a foundation of where this series is going for the next four weeks. And, and there's really no better place than the book of Acts to make sense of, of our mission and vision. In the book of Acts, you get not only this beautiful picture of the spreading of the gospel and the, the grassroots birth of the New Testament church, you, you also get glimpses of what the Christian life can and should be. Looking at verse 1, Luke begins with, with these words. He says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I love that name. If I have a son, maybe. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. This quote-unquote first book is Luke's reference to his gospel account. Luke's gospel account, it includes a number of things. It includes uh, the birth of Jesus. It tells of the God of the universe stepping out of eternity into time, conceived by the Holy Spirit and thus fully God, uh, born of the Virgin Mary, thus fully man, the God-man, Jesus stooped down and entered into the slums of human history. Luke's gospel account tells of the ministry and miracles of Jesus. The power of God on display in a number of marvelous, wondrous ways. Story after story of Jesus casting out demons, healing the sick, raising the dead. And not just his works, but his words. Claiming to be the son of God. Claiming to be the embodiment of truth. Claiming to be the only hope for salvation. Luke's gospel account tells of the life of Jesus. A life without sin. A life lived in perfect submission to the Father. The life that you and I could never live. Luke's gospel account tells of the crucifixion of Jesus, the shameful criminal's death that he died in the place of sinners, the death that you and I deserve to die as our sins were put upon him and he was punished in our place. 
Luke's gospel account tells of the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus bursting forth from the grave in triumph, declaring victory over the darkened dragons of Satan, sin, and death, and appearing to many who would become his witnesses. And finally, Luke's gospel account tells of the ascension of Jesus, his departure to the right hand of the Father, where he sits as exalted high priest and triumphant king of the universe until he returns to make everything sad untrue for those who trust in him for salvation. If you haven't figured that out yet, Luke's gospel account is all about Jesus. If you, if you need to figure that out, go back and read Luke's gospel account, and, and you'll see that he's tattooed all over the pages of that gospel account. And the book of Acts is really no different in that regard. Verse 1, you, you could say, is Luke's way of saying, as often is said in the TV world, previously on. Like, that's Luke's gospel account. In other words, the book of Acts is the sequel to the book of Luke. Both books written by Luke. Luke says, I've got some more things to tell you about Jesus. The book of Luke deals with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The book of Acts tells the story of what Jesus continued to do and teach after his ascension. Tells the story of a bunch of ordinary people like you and me, empowered by the Spirit, turning the world upside down for the glory of Jesus Christ. It's as simple as that. It's an amazing book of the Bible. If you've never read it, go read it this week. Verses 3 through 5 give us this window into a, a brief time between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. And so in that regard, it overlaps the book of Luke, you could say. Verse 3, it says... Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So, so the risen Jesus spent 40 days on planet earth after his resurrection. And, and during that time, he presented himself alive to the disciples, proving his triumph over Satan, sin, and death. And he spent a great deal of time with them, teaching them about the kingdom of God. We read about one of those teaching moments last week, if you were here. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus encountering the risen Jesus, having their hearts awakened to the beauty of Christ in all the scriptures. Verse 4 tells us of another of these moments the disciples had with the risen Jesus. It says this, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Can you imagine the excitement? I mean, we're going to have a couple baptisms today. You can just imagine being in the disciples' brains in this moment. What's this being baptized with the Holy Spirit? What's that? Are we going back to the Jordan River for round two? Are the clouds going to part like they did at your baptism, Jesus? Are we going to hear a voice from heaven declaring, you are my beloved son? That'd be cool if that's a part of our baptism. Wouldn't that be cool after the service? All of a sudden, Lauren and Trevor are getting baptized and the clouds part and we hear the words, you are my beloved son, you're my beloved daughter. That would be awesome. By the way, the gospel declares that to you. You're a beloved son, you're a beloved daughter of the king. Jewish rabbis had said that, that a, a revival of God's spirit uh, in terms of Jesus' statement here in verses four and five would coincide with the restoration of Israel's political power, which helps to make sense of, of where the conversation goes in verse six. It says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Uh, to Israel, and he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. The disciples are they're looking for the restoration 
of Israel, but Jesus presents them with a challenge that requires far greater power, a band of Christ followers acting as his witnesses to the world. And, and, and make no mistake about it, this is, this is not something just to, to skim over. Jerusalem was the city where Jesus himself was crucified. Jesus and the, the disciples had been rejected in Judea. And then there were all the cultural barriers to deal with in Samaria. And the end of the earth, like, not only is that geographically challenging, but it also means we're going to have to take the, the gospel to the Gentiles too. Verses 7 and 8 present us with Jesus' final words before ascending to heaven. And notice that those very words lay out the very mission of his church, the bride for whom he died. Empowered by the Spirit of God, you're going to point people to the crucified and risen Son of God. And starting with Jerusalem, I'm going to build my church to the ends of the earth. Here's something amazing to think about. If you read the book of Acts, chapters 1 through 7 of this book of the Bible tell the story of the gospel spreading in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 12 tell the story of the gospel spreading in Judea and Samaria. Chapters 13 through 28 tell the story of the gospel spreading to the ends of the earth as they knew it in their time, as far as Rome. In a few brief chapters of your Bible, Jesus is showing you and me that his plan will not fail. He will build his church and the gates of hell cannot do a thing about it. That should encourage us. We get to be a part of a mission that's not only possible, but certain. God himself, by his spirit, empowers that mission. The spirit of God, listen to me, the spirit of God is mightier than Bible Belt moralism. The spirit of God is mightier than the spirit at work in the suburbs that seeks to smother the Christian spirit. The church who fixes her eyes on Jesus and walks in the power of that spirit will put massive dents in the gates of hell. And I don't know about you, but that's the church I want to be a part of. A spirit-empowered, Christ-exalting, God-entranced church. Goes on to say in Acts chapter 1, verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. These verses speak of Jesus' exaltation into heaven along with his future return to make everything sad untrue. The church lives between those two moments in human history. Between the departure of Jesus and his return to consummate God's saving plan in the end. And during this time, we're not called to just gaze into heaven. To just kind of coast our way to death as if the gospel has no implications in terms of everyday living. We've been given a mission. We've been given the promised Holy Spirit to empower us in this mission. Jesus right now sits at the right hand of the majesty on high as our advocate in this mission. And the mission, going back to verse 8, is very simple. It's to be his witnesses. To go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That's where we get our mission statement as a church. We're not trying to invent something uh, that, that's so mind-blowing that it, that it sits above all of our heads, unable to be comprehended. We're, we're going back to Acts chapter 1. The heart of our church, the mission of our church is simple, to point our communities to Jesus, to share the gospel with both our lips and our lives, to tell people the glorious good news of a gloriously great Savior. 
to live before those same people and relate to them in a gospel manner. And I'm not just talking about non-Christians. I'm talking about one another. We need to be reminded of the gospel often. If you don't know what I mean by that, please stay for the next few weeks. It'll make more sense. Kent Hughes says this in his commentary. He says, To be a witness, we must have logos, the word of Christ, ethos, the inner reality of what we proclaim, and pathos, passion. The apostles were passionate for Christ. Observe Peter at Pentecost, Stephen at his stoning, Paul before Felix. They fervently promoted their faith. They were a band of zealous believers who turned their world upside down. A couple years ago, I wrote a seminary paper on George Whitfield, one of the most influential individuals in in all of church history. Uh, He was the open-air preacher who helped to establish evangelical Protestantism on both sides of the Atlantic. That's pretty amazing. One of the men through whom God chose to bring about the Great Awakening Revival Movement. And at one point in his life and ministry, uh, Whitfield was preaching a revival in Edinburgh, Scotland. And people were getting out of their beds at 5 a.m. to hear him preach. I don't know how, like, that has to be a work of the Spirit, right? Early one morning, a man on his way to the church to hear Whitfield preach ran into David Hume, uh, the the Scottish philosopher and skeptic. And and knowing Hume to be the skeptic that he was, the man said, "I, I thought you did not believe in the gospel. Hume's response, I do not, but he, Whitfield, does. George Whitfield got caught up in the wonder and beauty of the gospel. It started in his heart, it moved outward into his life and ministry, and it had an impact on the world. And here's the good news. You don't have to be George Whitfield to leave a gospel legacy. You don't. As we embrace the mission of pointing people to Jesus, including ourselves in those moments of unbelief, the mission begins to bear fruit, and the fulfillment of a vision begins to happen. Which brings me to our church's vision statement. We've simplified it in recent months. For some of you who have gone through the partnership material, maybe a meet Crosspoint lunch, this will be different than what you've seen before. But we simplified it in order to help bring clarity to what we hope will happen. So our vision is this, very simply, to see our communities informed and transformed by the power of the gospel for the glory of God. To be informed is to look to Jesus and his gospel To be transformed is to believe in him such that it changes who we are and how we live. The informing and transforming, it begins with us as we preach the gospel to our own hearts. And then it moves into our households and into our relationships as we bring this this gospel centrality and fluency into those relationships. And then it moves into our community groups and our workplaces, into our neighborhoods, into our congregation at large. And as the gospel continues to work in us, It really does uh, begin to radically transform the contours and fabric of our lives individually, communally, and culturally. And so that's what we're after as a church. And again, all of that happens in this this thing that I'm going to call the contested space for the next four weeks. Let, Let me just show you where we're going for the next four weeks. Maybe you'll find this helpful. If you look to the right side of this screen, for the next four weeks, we're going to talk about rhythms that that are at work and at play in the life of a person whose, whose life is centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so next week, we're going to talk about uh, living a life of celebration 
as we, as we look at this gospel story that's so much bigger than us, this story of a God uh, who creates, the story of a God who even as man rebels against him would enter into the narrative as a character to redeem us and, and uh, bring us into his eternal rest. We're going to talk about this beautiful gospel story that, that's meant to cause us to be the most celebratory people the world has ever known. Right? We should be the, a rowdy bunch, the church. We're going to talk about that next week. And then two weeks from now, we're going to talk about living a life of connection. That it's not just about this big gospel story, but it's about your story and how it connects to, to God's story. And we're all very different in that regard. We, we all have a past that we bring to the table, things that we grew up in, things that we've lived through and survived. We all have uh, residual sin issues in our hearts, in our lives. We all have identity issues when we're not looking to Jesus for our identity. We, we all have things that we turn to for rescue and deliverance when we're not looking to Jesus as our rescuer and deliverer. We're all different in that regard. And so... Uh, two weeks from now, we're, we're going to do a little bit of existential homework to talk about how the, the gospel works in, in our lives as individuals whose sub-stories connect to that bigger story. And then three weeks from now, we're going to talk about the rhythm of community, that, that we're not just saved into isolation. It's not just about the, the gospel story and our story connecting, but it's about sharing our stories with one another, intertwining our lives with one another to help one another to believe the gospel in the everyday stuff of life. And we're gonna talk about what that looks like. And then four weeks from now, we're gonna move into this rhythm of contribution that the gospel um, informs us in a way that, that we don't turn inward on ourselves and become a holy huddle, but rather we, we give our lives as a ransom for many whether it be pointing people who don't know Jesus to him or serving one another, serving the, the greater body of Christ. And, and we'll talk about all of those things. And the reality is that uh, our lives, uh, when, when we find them in a sweet spot, they really do, they, they revolve around Christ and his cross as the center of everything. But let's be honest for a second. That, that's not always how it works, is it? I mean, the Christian life is, is, in some sense, a life of a, of a human pinball, you could say, as we bounce back and forth between Christ at the center and any and everything else you could imagine at the center, whether it's, uh, whether it's money, whether it's family, whether it's our kids, whether it's our jobs, on and on we could go, and we're going to unearth much of that over the course of the next few weeks and I hope that, that you'll see the difference between uh, the gospel rhythms that, that we're going to talk about in greater detail and, and the anti-gospels that draw us to themselves so that when we are not celebrating God's story, we're, we're really suppressing it in some way. When, when we're not connecting our stories to God's story, we're, we're running toward distraction. And we'll talk about why that is and, and how that works. When, when we're not moving toward uh, the value of community, we're really moving toward isolation. When, when we're not living lives in which we give, give ourselves as a ransom for others, a life of contribution, we're really moving toward consumption. And we're going to talk about what it looks like to, get, to live in the contested space in light of everything that's up on that screen in a moralistic suburban context. That's where we're going for the next four weeks. But what, what I want to do is I, I don't want to just leave you with um, this language of rhythms that just kind of sounds like it sits up in the clouds theoretically. Um, 
We are going to talk about that. But I also want to share with you this morning a strategy for gospel transformation moving forward for us as a church. And, and we need a strategy. We need a plan. Strategies uh, help to create culture. Plans help to create culture. If you don't believe me, just look at Peachtree City. All right, culturally speaking, she is who she is. Cart paths, covenants and all, because a group of people had a strategy. They had a plan, and they fought hard alongside one another to implement that strategy as best they could, and thus you have a culture. When I say strategy, what I'm really talking about are the strategic environments that we really want you to be a part of, the environments in which we're fighting hard to help you breathe the air of the gospel, to experience every one of these rhythms. So, so let me just do this. Let me share these environments with you. And then for the next four weeks, as we talk about these values, I'll bring the environments to bear in the conversation in a way that'll help, help us see the beauty of these rhythms and, and how we can live them out as, as they're infused into these particular environments. So here we go. Crosspoint Peachtree City strategy for gospel transformation. Um, if you're new here, um, you'll notice that uh, right off the bat, uh, we're not looking to be the overprogrammed church. Um, we, we really are uh, looking to do a few things well that will give space for the gospel to, to ebb and flow, to move uh, and, and have uh, breath to it, so to speak, uh, in the everyday rhythms of life. And so uh, let me just very briefly walk you through this slide and, and we'll further unpack it in the weeks to come. So... The first environment that most certainly we be excited for you to be a part of is this one, the, the church gathered. As we come together on Sundays, our Sunday gatherings at 10 a.m., um, there are a number of things that make this environment unique. This is the only place where uh, the proclamation of God's word happens. This is the only place where the receiving of the sacraments happens uh, as we take, take communion, as we participate in baptism. Um, th this is uh, a unique place where though you can give online in terms of tithes and offerings, um, there are people who respond in worship by dropping things in a basket such that we've actually been asked not to eliminate the baskets in the name of technology because there are people who, who really do uh, move as an act of worship in doing that um, tangibly. Um, the, the unique way that we point kids to Jesus uh, on Sunday mornings here, a uh, very strategic way that doesn't happen uh, outside of this space, uh, the same way that it does in this space. And, and on and on and on I could go. I don't think I have to convince you of, of the value of, of Sunday gatherings. You're here, right? So that, that communicates that you see some sense of value uh, for that environment. The, the second, community groups. Um, we, we don't just have a second thing because every good church should. Like we really do believe that there are things we cannot accomplish in this space that we need to get smaller in order to accomplish. And thus, we gather in homes throughout the city on particular nights of the week uh, to uh, strategically dialogue about how the gospel works in our lives in light of the passage of Scripture that we find ourselves in as a church. And so, in a community group context, you find that not only... Are you growing in a shared biblical literacy as we, as we all sit with the same passage of Scripture but now can talk about it because it would be weird if you talked back right now, right? We can do that now. We can wrestle through the implications of what that passage of Scripture um, means and, and how it applies to our lives. But it also creates a space for 
Not just shared biblical literacy, but shared gospel fluency. Going back to the connection rhythm that I just mentioned, connecting our story to God's story. We're all different. And so if all we do is stare in a mirror and see the way we're wired and how the gospel works in our lives, but don't see how it works in the lives of others, uh, we, we really slow down uh, our understanding of the gospel. And, and it takes all the more uh, time, months, years to grow in a gospel fluency. There's something beautiful about sitting in a living room with others in my community group, knowing that uh, with any given passage of scripture, the most deeply rooted idol in my life is the idol of approval. And so you can ask my group, it comes, it comes up from time to time because it's one that, that is a slower, uh, more progressive work of sanctification in my life as a Christian. And so it's beautiful for me to not just sit and navel gaze and think about approval issues all the time, but to, to look across the living room and hear someone go, man, that's not my deepest rooted idol, mine's comfort. And here's how this passage of scripture speaks to that. And to hear that and to know that Approval might not always be my issue. I might have a season where comfort is, is the challenge that's, that's standing in the face of gospel centrality. Um, and, and to have understood how the gospel speaks into that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. But then there's also this piece with respect to the community group environment that has to do with the family of God. I, I'm convinced that, that this is the environment where we most fully experience the, the biblical word picture of the church as a family. You kind of get this picture of, of your flesh and blood family gathered around the Thanksgiving table. And so you have wisdom and diversity. You have the things that come out of the mouths of kids in those holiday moments. Um, things that are so, uh, so raw and honest that maybe you forgot to think that way. And then you have the, the wise sages sitting at the head of the table, speaking truth into the family at moments that's beautiful. You have this, this layered wisdom and diversity that happens when we get smaller in the community group context. You also have the, the sanctifying crazy uncle in every community group. I'm probably that person in my group. If you get into a community group, you stick around long enough, you'll find out not everybody thinks the same way you do about a passage of scripture. Not everybody treats the home that you're meeting in the way that you would treat the home you're meeting in. Uh, not everybody parents your children, uh, their children the way you would parent your children. And all of a sudden, God's sanctifying you, right? You want to run. That's what the human heart does. But there's something about moving toward that that's beautiful that, that God uses to shape us, to conform us into the image of Christ. And on and on I could go about that environment. And if you've been around for quite some time, you've heard of the first two Sunday gatherings and community groups. But there's also this reality that not every battle to believe the gospel, to fight against sin, happens between the hours of 10 and 11.30 a.m. on a Sunday morning or the two-hour window that your community group meets. Wouldn't that be nice? Hey, band of brothers, I'm struggling again. God just allows it to happen only when we gather. That's not how the Christian life works, right? And so there's a fight to believe in the space between, to, to fix our eyes on Jesus, and we need help in that. Uh, we can't, we're not always strong enough to do that ourselves. We don't always know how to connect the dots to, to the, the sin struggle in our hearts, maybe the struggle with doubt or unbelief, what's, what's standing in the way of our fixing our eyes on Jesus. And so we need others to rally around us. There are certain gender issues that are just not going to get talked about in a community group. There, there are uh, time uh, sensitive issues with respect to community group gatherings. You gather in a home for a couple hours on a particular night of the week, you're only going to get so far with a dozen people. 
right? You can only unearth so much of someone's story. And, and so there are time issues there. There are levels of transparency that are only going to go so far in a community group context. And so we want to uh, move people to get smaller into what we're calling gospel alliances, um, which are intended uh, to have two purposes. One, equipping, and two, fighting. And so uh, we want people to get more form-fitted, more intentional in one another's lives to uh, learn what makes us tick, to help one another learn what makes us tick, to learn what those, what those struggles are on the battlefield, in the trenches of the Christian life, to war for our very souls, to, to grow in an understanding of the scriptures, which are the sword of the spirit, to fight in the midst of the battle. That's the equipping piece. But then not just to sit with that, as a theological bobblehead, but to actually wield the sword alongside one another in the trenches when we go through those dark nights of the soul, to celebrate with one another when we go through those beautiful seasons where we see God's, God's grace most clearly. Um, we're, we're going for, for all three of these as a holistic, infused strategy for gospel transformation moving forward. You'll hear more about this in the, in the weeks to come, as I said, so if you have questions, um, I, I'm... I'm available to, to meet up with you to talk about this strategy, um, but I would also say maybe give it a little bit of, of space for the next few weeks and see where we go in the series and see if that might not answer your questions. At its heart, the, the, the dream for this church is that we would begin to experience more and more of the power of the gospel in our lives, that we wouldn't be just one more church in the Bible Belt that declares a gospel that only has the power to convert and save from hell, but rather a gospel that can sustain us every day of the Christian life until Jesus returns or we breathe our last breath. And again, if you don't know what I mean by that, stick around. It'll make more sense. Uh, I would champion a book to you that I'm passing off to all of our community group leaders, a book called Gospel Fluency by Jeff Vanderstelt. Um, you can Google that. Um, if you don't know how to spell Vanderstelt, come find me after the service and I'll, I'll hook you up. But if you really want to understand the culture that we're going after as a church, that book will answer the question. These are the tracks on the ground to try to make that happen, if that makes sense. And let me challenge you to, to move toward this, to test this, to see if God might not do something beautiful in your life by moving toward these rhythms that we're going to talk about, by moving toward even this strategy. Because I really do believe that, that the infusion of these values that we're going to talk about, these rhythms over the next four weeks and this strategy, I really do believe that, that it can smother the suburban spirit, that, that we can smother the suburban spirit with the spirit of Christ, that we can put massive holes in the gates of hell together. I'll leave you with this, this quote this morning, G.K. Chesterton. He once said, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. And I think that's very much true in this Bible Belt suburban context that we live in. So let me just, let me just say it up front. The next four weeks are not going to be easy. I mean, we're not just doing our homework on the Bible, but ourselves and our culture. So we're going to see some ugly things, but some things that God can redeem with great beauty, both in us and in, in our culture uh, that we find ourselves in. In a moment, we're going to move into a time of Communion, again, uh, we're all about Jesus. And so what a beautiful opportunity to, to tangibly put on display the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, Paul says that as often as you take the bread and dip it in the cup, you proclaim Jesus' death until his return. So there's even something missional about taking communion. 
as Christians. There's, there's something proclamational about that. It's a visual display of, of the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. And so if you're a Christian, that meal is for you. Um, as we uh, the, invite the band back up, we get ready to move into a time of worship through song again. Uh, I just, uh, just invite you to, to think about what's at the center. Um, to, to even in this moment, one, commit yourself to coming back for the next four weeks. But, but two, ask the Spirit of God to reveal both in you and in the culture that surrounds you what is antagonistic to the gospel so that you might experience more of the fullness of the abundant life that Jesus has for you and then be willing to embrace whatever the Spirit brings over the next four weeks.